You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Today is episode 38 with Aaron Flores. Now, before I jump in, I just wanted to remind you to head on over to my landing page, which is in the show notes to join my weekly newsletter. And in the weekly newsletter, I usually take a deep dive into today's conversation or this week's conversation. So a little bit more over there, and then you'll have the opportunity to directly respond to me to take the conversation into more two ways than one way. Now, a bit about Aaron. Aaron's practice is located in California, and he also works at Center for Discovery as a senior coordinator for weight-inclusive care. He is a certified body trust provider and also one of the co-hosts of the popular podcast, Dietitians Unplugged. We had Glennis on a few weeks ago. I think she's episode 33. Definitely check that one out if you haven't listened to the other co-host of the podcast. In today's conversation, Aaron and I talk about any form of disordered eating in men, which is obviously a conversation we have to have a lot more frequently. Doesn't happen. I don't even need to say more about that. Listen on. Aaron has so many gems of wisdom. And then towards the end, we sort of morph into another subset that Aaron works very closely with clinicians with any form of disordered eating and the challenges with that, particularly shame. So, Without further ado, let's jump right in. Well, thank you, Erin, so much for joining me today. I'm excited to have this conversation. I know you're a podcast veteran, so this is very special for me to uh, have you on. Well, thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. Yeah. So before we dive in, maybe can you share a little bit about your story? First of all, who you are, what you do, and how do you get in this space? Yeah. So I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist, and I'm a certified body trust provider. I have a private practice in LA. And I see folks virtually working on body image and food issues with folks. Most of my clients have eating disorders in some form of experience right now. And I've been doing, I've been a dietitian since 2007, I believe. I got to look at, yeah, looking at my diploma what, what right does there. It say uh, in 2007. The, in the chart of the- <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty long time. Yeah, I know it. No kidding. I'm uh, the years are flying by. That's what a whole other conversation. For a change already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I got into this as a career change. I went back to school at 30 to become a dietitian. I originally went to school right after high school, and I would say I was enrolled. I didn't really go. I was at the University of Colorado Boulder and really didn't go to classes at all <laughs> for most of that experience. And it's not a, I wasn't like, I mean, really, I was just staying home playing video games and watching Magnum PI. That was about what I Sounds was Sounds like college. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, compared to other people like, oh, you were in Boulder. You must have been skiing. You must have been like going to parties. You must have. No, I was staying at home. I was playing video games and watching Magnum PI. Like it was very like not exciting experience at all. Anyways, <laughs> I decided at some point, like, I'm just going to be done. I'm done with school. Like, I'm just going to drop out and I'm going to move back home to LA. And I did. And I worked in the video game. This is like 1995. So you got to hop in your time machine and remember the dot-com boom. So this is right when all of the internet business 
were really starting to blow up and everyone thought they needed a website or something on it. So I worked in internet video game design and making internet video games for about eight years or so. That's so cool. What were the games back then? I'm trying to remember. Well, I wish I say, again, I wish I had told you I worked on some amazing, cool games like (laughs) Doom or Halo or any of those things. No, I was making kids like Disney short internet video games. So like little penguin bounce games where like you had to bounce a penguin across a cliff, (laughs) right? Or like little things tied to like all these shows. So it wasn't anything you probably would have seen. It was all probably tied to like studios because I was here in LA or like educational video game startups. I was much more of a Game Boy person. I don't know where that falls, but yeah. I made like a Mario, not a Mario, but like, um, yeah, like a, a Mario like style, like side scroller video game that was we were all very proud of that I think 10 people played, but I, w- I was very proud of it. So yeah, I did that for a number of years. And again, it sounded great, but I really hated it. I hated that work just because I, I got nothing out of it. And I would come home Friday and literally just like be anxious and cry sometimes about having to go back to work on Monday. Like, it's just like, oh, this is the worst. Anyways, so I knew I knew I needed to change and I'd bounced around from a couple different jobs and I knew I needed something different. In the midst of all of that, my personal life was, you know, it was fine. And what was I was living through is going through a lot of discomfort, unclear how to feel comfortable around my body. And I had gained weight in college and at some point I was like, I think I, I need to like lose weight. And I had seen a dietitian when I was 15. I didn't really need to see a dietitian when I was 15, but I was encouraged to. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll go see a dietitian. I didn't do anything. She told me to until I was in my mid twenties. And then I did everything she told me to. And what I realized now, she taught me how to have an eating disorder. All the same behaviors that I was doing was what I saw when I started to work in treatment centers you know, 10, 15 years later. So I became a pretty hardcore dieter and over-exerciser. Probably could have been diagnosed with an eating disorder if I probably, if I met with someone about it, but no one thought anything about it. I got a lot of praise for it. And that's in the midst of all that is when I decided I should become a dietitian. And it was really with a lot of hubris that I sort of went into this career. I figured if I can lose weight, well, then everyone else can. And I can just tell people how to do that. And so I really came into this work wanting to be a weight loss guru guy. I wanted to be sort of like Richard Simmons. I wanted to like be someone who could tell people how to be smaller. And I probably stayed on that path through most of my school, like undergrad and probably most of my internship. And what started to change that path was learning about intuitive eating. And I had... How did you learn about intuitive eating at that point? Though I had heard of it as a student, right? So again, we're talking like 2000, right? So this is before the movement that is happening now. My entire undergrad and internship was entirely focused on weight loss, not any other sort of weight-inclusive approach. So I heard about intuitive eating as an undergrad and at probably, I can't remember exactly when, but probably like in my junior year or, some, or being close to done. And I sounded great and I probably read a little bit of it and I was like, ah, this doesn't quite 
there's something didn't land for me. I didn't pick it up. Nothing <laughs> resonated with me. I still saw dieting as like my path and therefore everyone else's path. And of course, naturally. Naturally, right? And it wasn't until I heard one of the co-authors, Elise Resch, speak at a local dietetic professional meeting. And once I heard her speak about intuitive eating, there was something about how she communicated it and her demeanor that really opened up the door for me. And from there, I read the book. And then from there, I emailed her and said, you know, this is like, thank you for writing this. It's really, I see so much of my own experience in it. And it, I can see how it has been helpful to me already and how it could be helpful to my clients or working with folks. And she responded to the email and says, I do a monthly supervision group. Would you like to join? And I was like, of course. So I went to supervision with her for a few years. It was once a month, every like Wednesday night and like six or seven of us, maybe 10 at the most, who would pile into her office and just do oh, what it was life was in person. Oh, that life yeah. was in person. <laughs> yeah. There were a couple of people that dialed in and it was like, just like at the start of like teleconferencing or like we were FaceTiming and it was always wonky, but anyways, yeah. <laughs> you know, most of us were in person and it was really great. That's where I sort of learned about all of this. And I was working at the VA and I was running a weight loss program for the VA and I, through intuitive eating, you know, I learned about health at every size. Through health at every size, I learned about body trust and becoming a body trust provider. And it was all of these things that sort of combined made me realize I cannot run a weight loss program anymore. Like, I can't do this. And because of working at the VA and working with a lot of veterans and people who had experienced trauma, I began to understand a little bit more about how eating disorders show up. With folks, I learned about binge eating disorder and seeing the prevalence there. And all of those things sort of coalesced like, I can't do this way of working anymore. And over the course, I would say of about three or four years, I transitioned to really having a practice that is focused on helping people be at home in their bodies, helping people have a, a healthier, safer relationship with food that is not involved around weight loss in any way, shape, or form. And through that, I've done my own work. And, you know, I've realized how harmful dieting was to me personally. So it's really been sort of like this sort of roundabout path that started one way and has ended a completely different way. I wouldn't say it's ended, but has gone a complete different direction. Practicing this way is far more rewarding to me professionally than anything I could have ever expected. Like I just, to do this work with folks every day is so meaningful, so helpful. And it's, yeah, it's just, I couldn't have expected anything better. Almost like a complete 180 from your first job. A total 180. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. I hear this also from people who are sort of transitioning from more weight loss, dietetics, or any sort of practice. I'm a therapist. Some of my colleagues trying to transition into much more intuitive eating, health at every size, weight neutrality. And it's not necessarily a leap of faith because they understand the principles. They want to do this practice, but it's like, well, who's going to want to go to a dietitian who doesn't help them lose weight? And that is to a certain extent, a, a bit of a leap of faith because we do live in a society that is obsessed with weight loss. For sure. I, I agree. It's a leap. And I think the reason we, at least from my perspective, the reason we think it's such a leap is because we haven't been taught anything different. So when we're only given one answer or one path, 
we assume that this must be the right one. And it feels scary and like a leap of faith because we're so entrenched in fat phobia and weight bias, weight stigma, and diet culture. It really isn't a leap, right? It's just a different way of thinking that is more centered on lived experience, more centered on making sustainable changes that come from a place of compassion and not shame. I think it feels like a leap again because we're so entrenched in diet culture. Yeah. And there's a certain level of fear that might be attached to just acceptance as me, you, the client in front of us, who they are, as opposed to saying, no, here is a list of 10 things that you can do to fix yourself. Goodbye. Perfect. Wrapped bow. This is a lot messier. This is eating disorders and trauma and body image and imperfections. That is a big one. Yeah. I sort of jokingly tell folks like, if someone has a 10 step solution or bullet point handout about all this work, like head for the hills, like you might be going in the wrong direction. So I love Star Wars and Star Wars comes up in my work all the time. Because <laughs> as it is it's great, right now. Huh? As it is right now. As it, yeah. Because the metaphor I find, I find helpful is there's scenes where like in the original trilogy where Luke is training with Yoda and he's like, how am I going to know good versus bad, good side, dark side, light side of the force. And he says, the dark side is sexy. It's like seductive. It lures us in. It seems easy. And this other side is like, you'll know the right direction when you're calm and when you're at peace. And I think because there's so much fear around our bodies and so much fear around gaining weight or being in a larger body that leads to this, like, I need the 10 bullet points on how to fix the problem because I've identified the problem as my body. And if we were to really take a step back and find, hey, my body is not actually a problem that needs fixing, we come at this from a different, totally different angle. So yeah, I think there is a lot of fear and I think there's a lot of anger in this, in the way diet culture lures us in. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit more about the anger that you see. Well, again, so I'm going to go back to Star Wars, right? So yeah, I actually do see Yoda behind you. Oh yeah. No, if uh, yeah, I got Yoda here. I got Darth Vader here for all the folks. That's amazing. Great (laughs) podcasting, by the way, where I'm like going through my office and people are like, uh, whatever. Anyways, I have, yeah, no, I have, I have another, yeah, I've, I've Yoda's all over my office. I love it. (laughs) So There's a line where Yoda says, you know, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. There's a similar pattern in the intuitive eating book that talks about the fear or like wanting to lose weight starts with restriction. That restriction leads to these biological inevitables that we get hungrier and that we crave food more. And then we lead to binging. And then we gain weight and then we start at the top again of like wanting to lose weight and we start in this circle. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. It's the fear of gaining weight, right? The fear of being in a larger body because if you are in a larger body, you are treated differently. Your body is less valued than a smaller one. And so absolutely that's true in our society. 
Absolutely, that is true. So if you are in that body, there is anger. I'm angry at my body that this is the way it is. So I need to change it. We can't sit with that anger, right? Then it leads to just hating our body. Like I've tried, it doesn't work, right? I blame myself because dieting doesn't work when it actually our body is responding perfectly. It's exactly the way it should respond. And then we just suffer. And then we just sit in the cycle of suffering. So I think there's ways in which I think about pulling out, right, of this diet cycle. And anger to me is one of those ways because we can internalize anger and get angry at ourselves and stay in that cycle. Or we can externalize anger and say, like, I'm angry that this is the only message I got. I'm angry that of all the ways in which diet culture and weight stigma have impacted me. I'm angry that this is how bodies are viewed. And I want to be, and I don't want to be a part of that anymore. Yeah. And it's an interesting way to conceptualize this cycle because there's got to be a place for us to break that. We can't continue going on over and over and over in the same sort of loop. Obviously it's a lot easier said than done. Oh, totally. Yeah. So pivoting ever so slightly, I know that you do a lot of work with men. I don't think that it's a conversation that we have often enough because eating disorders or really disordered eating on any point in the spectrum is so common with everyone, not just like the typical, not even what the person looks like, but a typical woman. So the way that I'm conceptualizing is this, that there are ways that it's probably similar to how we conceptualize eating disorders and there are ways that it's probably different. So maybe breaking down what those sides are to help us understand a little bit more. Yeah. Well, first off, I think one of the traps we get into is because there's not a lot of discussions around the topic, I think part of what we find is that we try to make it one experience and it's not. And for anyone who identifies as male, their body experience is varied and it's complex and it's nuanced the same way any other gender would experience it. And so the challenge is how do we sort of shed a light on this, but also acknowledge there's, we need so many lights shed on this. It's not just my light because the folks that work with me, I get sort of insights into them, but it's not representative of all what men might experience. So with that being said, the things I find similar are sort of the real logistical stuff, right? The same obsession with bodies, the same obsession with like food around what to eat, what not to eat, like people really spending hours trying to think about a meal, that fear, right? That anger, that fear, anger, hate, suffering is the same, right? That is totally present in both. And I would say from a very broad perspective, there's way more similarities than differences. There are, there's way more similarities. And one of the things that people often ask me is like, as a clinician, what advice do you have in working with men? I was like, do basically almost the same when people sort of ask me that question, I'm like, do the same shit you're doing with other folks. You just might need to listen a little bit differently or like be open to like a different lived experience. You're basically doing the same stuff. It's just making space for a different way of nuance into it. And so I think some of the things that really are different is, well, actually, before I go into differences, one similarity is how patriarchy is still negatively impacting all folks who experience it. So 
patriarchy is negatively impacting female identified bodies and it's also negatively impacting male identified bodies and so is capitalism so is white supremacy so is all of these big systemic things show up the big or what one difference that i tend to find is how the reason i think a lot of this is not discussed is because of masculinity and i think it how masculinity creates this narrative around what is acceptable to talk about what emotions are acceptable to feel, what emotions and feelings do we need to suppress and hide? What are we allowed to share and not share? And I think the dominant narrative is that anger is the only feeling masculine folks are able to demonstrate. And anger is the only one, right? And like sort of like overt, violent anger. I think that's a big problem because I think there's all these other feelings that we're not talking about. But I think especially young boys growing up will experience some pretty clear moments where they share a feeling and they're ridiculed for it or they're teased for it or they're given a message don't so they don't they learn not to and the problem there is that it sets up this place where well i'm just gonna like sort of not just suffer through it but like fix it on my own Right. And and if I, I'm just going to like power through it. Right. It's like if I, I just got to put my mind to it and I'll fix it. So that's one part. I think the other is there is definitely, uh, this is not a clinical term, but like bro culture out there that is incredibly. Like that. We're going to create that. <laughs> and I think it's definitely like sort of upper socioeconomic status, mostly white men who are sort of dominating this narrative of like, I'm going to, hack my body. I'm going to hack my existence to make it perform better. So I think there's a big drive for performance. There's a big drive for getting the maximum out of our body and sort of like, you know, because of like this, I think the thought is because I know a little bit of science or I can interpret a little bit of science, I know better than my body. And I just need to like will it in a different direction to get the most out of it. Another big difference that I see is that because of all of these layers that show up, no one's talking about it with each other. So no men are sort of talking about it with other men. So there's no common humanity, which leads to very little self-compassion. And in doing this work with a lot of men, what I've found is self-compassion is very hard to let in. If I'm self-compassionate, it's a sign of weakness. I'm just making an excuse for why I can't do this. For example, lose weight. And I think it's that narrative that is really hard for some folks to wrap their head around that like self-compassion is actually being kind and we're allowed to be kind to ourselves. It's not an excuse. It's sort of understanding what life is like, what is realistic. It doesn't have to be a very like the standard that's so high. It can be somewhere in the middle, right? And embracing that gray. Yeah. And kindness is not a weakness just because it's not anger. Exactly. No, I sometimes wonder if the numbers you talk about, oh, it's so uncommon in men or something like that. If the numbers that we have to calculate are so much lower than the reality, because there are so many people who don't get help. They don't go to dietitians. They don't go to therapists. They don't go to treatment because there's so much shame attached Yeah, I would agree completely. And I think there's a lot of other folks doing research who would agree with that, that, you know, and this goes for any marginalized identity is that most screeners 
are really focused on one type of eating disorder and experienced by a thin female body. So if there's anything different, right, some people are not even being screened properly because they might answer, that question doesn't apply to me, right? So I think it goes back to the questions we're asking people. I think it goes back to the bias of, you're right, why would I ask this guy if he has an eating disorder, right? Guys don't get eating disorders and he's just going to the gym, right, every day and like building muscle. Why is that bad? That's not bad. He's just doing something good for himself. But if we look closer, he's not eating enough. There's a compulsion with exercise, right? I mean, there's a rigidity to that where, well, I think there could be a lot of disordered behavior or eating disorders mass like under all of that, what we sort of visually see. And I think for all the things you mentioned, for sure, those numbers are higher. I just know it. Like it's just, we're using some flawed tools to assess prevalence when probably there, there could be a lot more, a lot better tools to reflect what's really happening. Yeah. So, I mean, the people that you work with are obviously already, they already took steps to help themselves, which is so much further than most of the people that exist. If somebody's either listening to this and hasn't taken any steps, doesn't know what steps to take, or doesn't want to take any specific steps toward seeing someone face-to-face and acknowledging this, what are some things that you would say even to start with, chipping away at some of the stereotypes or the shame or something like that? I think I would definitely focus on shame. And I have a few clients who are adults and it's the first time they've ever talked about food before or their eating disorder. Some have been in therapy for a long time. Some have had other sort of work done around mental health, but never about their eating disorder. And I think it starts with shame. I think there is a stigma to it. I think there is so much shame that like to identify as having an eating disorder puts people at risk, makes people feel unsafe. So I think the thing I want people to hear who know something's going on, right, who are in it and really struggling and are getting maybe to the point of reaching out to someone or maybe halfway there, right, let's just put on a continuum, is that your shame is real and it's valid and it's okay to experience it. And that is what is keeping you from moving forward. And what I find is so important, and this is for the clinicians, right, who are picking up the phone or answering the email that first time, is we need to really understand the impact of shame on people's healing. And we can perpetuate shame so easily when we get that first phone call, when we get that email, when we do that first session with people if we're not being really attentive to how we could perpetuate shame, it's no wonder people are not wanting to call or reach out to get help because at some point they might have tried in the past and been met with shame or invalidated. Hey, you, why would you don't really have an eating disorder? You're, you know, in a larger body and larger bodies don't restrict. So you must not have an eating disorder, right? Or is binging really a problem? It just sounds like you just, you might overeat sometimes, right? Like, I think there's been invalidation in so many ways from 
professionals, from family, from society. So I think one is understanding how brave it is, right? For the individual out there, it's a lot of bravery to reach out and do that first step. And for the clinician is understand how much bravery is showing up when people are deciding to work with you and do a lot of listening. Yeah. Just echoing something that you said before for say a clinician is saying, oh, but I I don't know how to work with men. Most of my clients are women, but it's like listening, listening. This person is just a person. We have universal emotions. We have universal experiences and we have individual experiences. And just because somebody looks like they have some sort of experiences doesn't actually mean that they do. So the same thing that you would do for any client, you do for this one. Yeah. And I think we honor, always think about honoring lived experience. I think honoring our lived experience and also that we can acknowledge privilege and biases and with our clients. And we can also do that in a way to sort of open up the dialogue to say like, yeah, there's some stuff that I might not know because of the privileges that I show up with right now. And I think it's an important thing that I find can be really helpful to build that trust with clients. Yeah. So pivoting slightly to a different topic, just because I wanted to save a couple minutes to talk about this. I know we probably won't have enough time, but just figuring a little bit. So I know that you do some work with clinicians who might be having their own body image struggles. And I guess I wanted to get a little bit of your take because there's been a debate in the community. And I think with all debates, you can debate any side and make it make sense. But there's like camp A, if you treat eating disorders or disordered eating, you cannot have any body image eating disorder situation. And camp B is that is what makes you the best person to help this person. Um, And obviously is not as black and white as that, but I'm curious about some of your thoughts on that. It's interesting. So I would probably be, I would call it camp C for me. Okay. Okay, (laughs) My camp C is that I think that's what brings a lot of us to this work. Me for sure. A lot of my colleagues are coming to this work because of their own experiences with food and body, disordered eating, eating disorders, dieting, someone close in the family, whatever. But it's, I think there's a lot of people who are drawn to this work because of their lived experience. The next is that there is a narrative that gets promoted in recovery where it's this idea that once you get to a certain point, your eating disorder won't come back and that you'll be recovered, right? And that you'll have enough years by and it won't show up again. (laughs) And I don't think that's true. I think people's healing will look different. And someone who had an eating disorder previously, it could show up again because as we have learned over the past few years, life is really hard, full of traumatic experiences. And sometimes people fall back into their behaviors because that's what they know. That's what they know to help with the coping of life. And I think that understanding that you can struggle and still be a really good clinician is where I come from. Just because someone could experience depression doesn't mean they can't help people with depression, right? I mean, like 
just because you experience an eating disorder or have experienced an eating disorder or could be struggling doesn't mean you can't help people. You can't be, I think you can show up in your office, in your sessions and do ethical work and also still struggle outside of that. And by creating this narrative that you will be recovered or that, you know, it's not okay to struggle. We go back to our favorite word of the day is shame. And that when it does show up, it's like, I, now I can't talk to anybody about it. Now I can't go see anyone or about it. I can't, what if These I can't are all go my to colleagues. Treatment. Yeah. Right. I can't go to treatment because I'll see a client there or who am I going to talk to about my eating disorder? Right. They're all colleagues. And so again, people then struggle all alone and really struggle and then don't know where to go. So I have a group that I run with Dr. Rachel Milner and we meet every other Sunday and it's for clinicians in the field who are experiencing disorder eating, eating disorders, body image issues, dieting, and struggling in trying to find healing. And I think we need many more of these groups. I think the number of people struggling is probably very high. The number of people getting help for it is very low. And I think it goes down to shame and trust. And who can I talk to about this? No one's really, I can't show up in this space and do this work because I'm going to be judged. Someone's going to think I'm not a good person or not a good clinician because I have my own struggles. And I don't think that that's true. Yeah. The not good enough clinician is a big one because if you know all the stuff in your head, then why would you still be struggling internally? You must not be a good therapist or a dietitian. Oh my God. I think obviously. that's the biggest. <laughs> knowing does not equal doing. Yeah. Like when will we understand and validate? Knowing doesn't mean doing. And that goes for people who are not clinicians, right? I mean, there are people who have been working on their recovery for years. They know what to do, right? Like I'm sure no one's like, someone has talked to them about how to manage their eating disorder, how to like help in certain ways, knowing doesn't mean doing. And so if we can separate that out and say like, those are separate, it doesn't make you an imposter. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean you're not effective. We're human. I show up on my sessions, right? And I'm human. I'm a person and I show up as one. And that means if I'm having a hard day, it doesn't mean I like chop on session. Oh, listen, I'm having a hard day, whatever. But like, I think it's being real that like, yeah, life is really hard. Like life goes up and down, right? Or like we are humans in the room and to assume that like we are not, that just because we do this work, we are smarter, more capable, more able, more recovered is sets up this power dynamic, this hierarchy that I think keeps us from connecting with our clients. Oh, absolutely. I'm thinking about when it sort of like pushes the border or the line just a little bit too much. And I don't know if this is even eating disorder specific, but if somebody is really struggling in that their functioning is impaired and going to work is really difficult, caring for clients, especially the emotional burden is taking a toll on them. Then again, nothing to do with eating disorder. This might be anxiety. This might be family stuff that it's also okay to say, I need to take a break. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if people, especially providers, right, had really good, who are struggling, have really good clinical support themselves, right? You can assess when that point is. 
you can say, hey, yeah, maybe I do need to take a break. And that's fine. We need to take a break, right? But because no one's talking about it and because no one is like giving space to this to these conversations, that conversation is never had. Yeah, I think this is so important for sure for providers, but even somebody who is struggling with some form of an eating disorder or disordered eating, they're not a clinician, but they work somewhere else and their work might be not even toxic, but it just, they can't do it. It's not only okay, it's probably necessary to take a step back and take some time. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, when you know March 2020 hit and we all had to change our lives radically in a day, I think we sort of saw like, oh, when I'm forced to take a break, my priorities change, right? I'm able to see like what is necessary, what is not. And I think one thing that we are seeing now is as people go back to work is that the expectations around like, well, I'll I'll do this, but I won't do this anymore. Like I'm not going to be pushed to this level anymore. I'll just quit. I'll just find another job because I can't do this one anymore because you're expecting too much of me or not expecting too much, but you're demanding too much, right? You're making unrealistic demands on my time and energy. Yeah. I mean, I think that is a part of all of our experiences that we really need to think about is like, what boundaries do we need in our lives to make space for our own care, our own healing and our own, our own mental health? Yeah. So, so important, especially as we carry the load, the emotional load in this work. So, so important. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, for all the dietitians that are listening, right. We're not really bound to do this. Right. But like, if you're a dietitian working with eating disorders, hire a supervisor. If you don't have one yet, hire one today. Are you available? uh, Sure. Hit me up. Yeah. (laughs) And if you don't already have one, get a therapist today. I have at least two places where you can take your work and your emotions someplace to process. Yeah, that's a good point. I can obviously talk to you all day, but I won't keep you for much longer. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you and uh, some of the resources that you mentioned? Yeah, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I don't post that often, but I'm working on it. I'm, you're, you're hanging out and behind the surface there, scrolling I'm maybe. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> I lurk a little bit and then I post every now and then. But my handle is at Aaron Flores RDN. And you know, that's probably the best way to sort of see what's going on currently with my work. I'm starting a new podcast that will be coming out probably in uh, maybe in a couple months here in 2022, maybe like June or July. And it's called Men Unscripted. And I'm going to be interviewing men and those who identify as male anonymously. I'm not going to share their identity. And I want to just have an open conversation about their experience in their body with and with food. And my hope is through those conversations to share... Um, to have other folks hear that what experiences are people are really having. And like you said, shed a light on something that is not really talked about that often. Yeah. And what about your other podcast? Oh, yeah. And I, I uh, even though we're not doing new episodes, I do have a podcast with my co-host, Glennis Oyston. It's called Dietitians Unplugged. And all the episodes are archived. So you can still listen to the 85 episodes that we did on anywhere you get your podcast. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Rochelle, thanks for having me. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. 
you'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.